Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Raymond Miller, Chaz and Karen Brinchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 121, Poetry with Ashanti. Welcome, Ashanti. Hey, how are y'all doing today? We are doing great. Ashanti has written a wonderful book, well, a chapbook of poetry that won the Black River Chapbook Competition. Tell us all about it. Tell us about you and poetry. Yeah, I'm a poet. Uh, I also write screenplays and stage plays. Black Under is my debut uh, chapbook. So it's a, a quaint collection of poetry, but I feel like it's very, I really tried to capture the totality of, of human capacity for emotion as much as I could understand it as a person who was not even 30 yet. That's how I would describe it. It's joy, it's grief, it's pain, it's longing, it's happiness, it's a little bit of lust in there. It's it's some of everything, but in a very short collection that that I think uh, warrants more time than it takes up pages. Oh, I was going to say, I hate the word quaint because I think it is quaint. People think of tiny little old fashioned houses that are falling down. And this is beautiful. This is a lot of raw emotion and and reality and putting a lens on struggles and challenges and history in ways that aren't necessarily done by a lot of other free form. And I admire the way you've done it in poetry that you have had to capture entire ideas. There's a whole story or play in each poem. And I think they're beautiful that way. Thank you. Thank you. When I say quaint, I definitely... I mean it as a compliment to myself because this actually used to be a a much thicker collection and it takes a certain eye I think to to really get down to what it is you want to say and to be willing to leave anything extra behind um and I think that's that's something I definitely tried to capture in here and yeah I'm just I'm just really proud of it. I hope I can take a moment to <laughs> to, to just acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you write these poems all to be published together, or is this just a collection of po- separate poetry that you had written over over a period of time? It was definitely the latter. Right. I yeah. I wrote a lot of them when I was uh, getting my MFA at the University of California in Riverside. Mm-hmm. So they were together in that sense, a lot of them were, but not necessarily as a a conscious collection. I didn't I didn't know until until most, if not all of the poems were written, that this was something that actually had a, a through line and they belong um, together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes that does just emerge afterwards. If you were at Riverside, were you there when Mallow Hopkinson was? Yes, yes, I was. Oh, oh yeah, she's beautiful. She's we're all a little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's she's a she's a friend of at least mine. I think. I think she's a friend of ours. I think she's a friend. I didn't know how well you know her, but uh, I love her. She's um, she's just awesome. 
Yeah, she is. She's she's a wonderful, wonderful person. I I learned a lot about uh, being a writer from honestly just just watching Nalo. I hope that doesn't sound too weird, but just the way the way they the way they carried themselves and and I have to say this because because I think a lot of what I get caught up in my very early career is is balancing expectations, you know, maybe what other people might uh, expect from my career or expect from the content that I write just because of who I am demographically. Mm -hmm. And it helps to have another Black person walking the same hallways as you, you know, and who has won awards for, for their writing and is a great writer and a great person and really being inspired by that. Um, so that's just me. That's just me fangirling out right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're, they're awesome. Although I will, I will tell you something. I want to, I'm going to name drop. You've heard of Susan Laurie Parks, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. She and I were classmates. We went to the same college and we were in the same creative writing classes. And there were three that everyone took. And so I knew her and she was a college student, just like anybody else. She was, um, you know, she was a beginning writer. Just she was good, but she hadn't. She, she I mean, she's talked about it too. She had a moment where she kind of, you know, or a, a, you know, an inspiration where where she took off. But she was once just a college girl, just like you were when you were in college, and and everybody else was in college, learning what she was doing. It's like you were saying, she's learning learning where you belong and what works for you. And she discovered plays. I, I think honestly, there's something about poems that it, it shows that you have a love of words. I mean, anybody can throw out a bunch of words and say, you know, a memoir, this happened yesterday. I mean, not to give memoir writing, which is also cool. I'm about to go back and kill myself later for this, but poetry <laughs> You have to distill it down. And I, I could write a thousand words for a 10 word poem and then figure out which ones don't go. How do you approach it when you're when you're writing a poem? Do you write and then edit or do you write? Is it perfect the first time? Tell us about your process of poetry writing. Hardly ever perfect the first time. I spent a lot of time over like single lines. <laughs> um, it definitely is a laborious process for me but but kind of like the the like evil scientists tinkering over their like steaming mm-hmm. beakers like I'm very like let's move things around and and erase things and rewrite them down here and move this and that uh, it's I and I edit as I go which I always hear a lot of advice not to do that but I can't help myself. I get very uh, enthralled with a particular line or stanza, and I just let that let that happen. And as as the poem builds up onto itself, I I gradually just get closer and closer to to the poem that wants to be published. It, you make it almost sound like sculpture in its own way. They say if yes. taking away any part of the rock that isn't your vision. Mm. Yeah, I think it feels that way too. It's very, very meticulous for sure. 
And you've sold a few places. Like I noticed on a couple of websites, you've sold in the psychology of music and world literature today, which are any of these pieces, the ones that have been in there or? Yes, the one in a world literature today is a poem that was written after uh, Sandra Bland, who. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, are, are they going to make me explain it? Um, but yeah, for context yeah. for, for folks who who don't know, um, Sandra Bland was pulled over by a state trooper for an alleged traffic violation. And days later, she was found dead in her in her cell for something that is by me considered to be totally preventable. And uh, I was just going to say that um, World Literature Today publication was that poem was after her and it's called If. Um, And I wrote that poem kind of, I don't know, it's doing a weird time teleportation thing because the day that she was pulled over in 2015 is the same day in the year uh, 1040 that Lady Godiva rode through the town, uh, her town nude on horseback to force her husband to lower taxes. Um, So this poem is parallel between uh, women using their bodies Mm to to hopefully gain some sort of safety or in in Sandra Bland's case, considering whether that would have even been possible um, for her body as a black woman. Um, So that is that is that poem in world literature that today, a few of these are totally unseen by the public. (laughs) which I'm really excited about. Um, I think one of those I'll be reading uh, reading later. Yeah. We have a moment here. Would you read? I think it's going to be my favorite, and it's mostly because I'm a feminist person in extreme way. I loved your cleaning up men's messes. Would you be? Oh, yeah. Would you read that for us? (laughs) I sure will. Totally. I I lived in Texas for for a point in time, and... um, I had a, a coworker who used to park in restricted areas or like didn't pay the meter or something like that and uh, would put a Bible on the dashboard so that he wouldn't get a ticket. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he never got one. Wow, that's brilliant. I have no idea. That's, that's so Texas. That's brilliant. As I say, we're, we're in California and that wouldn't really fly here. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much. I can go ahead and read the poem now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Cleaning up men's messes. What of this women's work? It pays unwell the daily sweep of bread and glass crumbs. Grandkids think I'm picky because I'm always fussing them for even how they walk, sliding feet, scooting my rugs. Just don't want them to notice the cold blood stain on the carpet beneath, seeped as I grieved long before pouring isopropyl alcohol libation. I wipe counters clean of catsup and remember, glass bottles and hocked spit, lobbed like Molotov cocktails, porcelain plateware broken across backs of schools of school kids. Built my house with bricks thrown through my window. 
When not cleaning commodes or windows or open wounds, there is much to be sewn. Busted knee needs patching, shirt gnawed by dogs or asphalt, buttons ran off in another man's fist. Once I'm done with that, I still got to cook a meal we can all sit down for. Ben learned cold beer move a man much as any fire hose. How I was raised, women should be felt, not heard. Reverse must be true for men. If not the ring of a bomb so close it fevers your ear, it's whiskey thick threats. Every night I hear somebody else's sliding feet along my neighbor's driveway. Guess they think being strong means throwing their weight around or starting fires or coming home to hit women. But men ain't too much different from us. I too find myself trying hard not to love a man. We all bend to the will of hard water, know how hard it is to sleep with a sink full of broken dishes, windows, skulls. I love okay, that's that. awesome. <laughs> oh my God. I, I'm, I've got tears in my eyes. That's just, you're, it's, you're so correct. That's just so right. It, it was, it, I don't know if you've ever run into Cassandra Lane's work. She did a memoir called We Are Bridges. And it was three generations from Louisiana to having a kid in Los Angeles and the mm. history of a black woman who had, her grandfather had been lynched and yet trying to raise a child with to honor both the heritage and the new one. And as we were going through there, we were noticing, said, I, I understand that although you've written this from a black point of view, but you would think that men would start behaving better if they've been nothing but oppressed. And yet black women have had it even worse than white women. Far, far worse. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a lot. It's compounding, yeah. <laughs> especially in America. There's no there's no slack for <laughs> for anything, you know, and, and to be clear, the quality of life in America in general is poor. It only gets worse <laughs> the more <laughs> marginalized you are. I, I, I just have to laugh about it because it's it's so ridiculous. Um how intricately designed it is to where there's actually levels of unfairness and oppression in this society. And, <laughs> and, mm. and that's something that's something I've actually been reading, um, or I should say, I just started uh, reading a book called my grandmother's hand. And it, it talks about how we all have this trauma in our bodies, white men included, <laughs> And I have to say it uh, just because because if we don't acknowledge that, uh, you know, this is the thing that's that begets the violence. So I just I don't know. I'm, I'm, I could complain about America all day, <laughs> to well, be honest, but I don't think it's that kind of podcast. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a smash the patriarchy girl all over the world. I've had fortune to live in other countries and. And sometimes when I've looked at the places and said, wow, you know, women have it rough in America, but you guys are 20 years behind us. And like mm. down in Australia, I noticed all of the fashions for women were set solidly in the 50s, where clearly they were hoping we would stay forever. 
And hmm. it was a little thing of looking around. I mean, I was a professional woman and I was sitting with a one of my sales guys and looking around and saying, can you point to any of the clothes in the window that would be appropriate for me to wear calling on this customer? Whereas there's three, three within eyesight places that sell men a really nice suit and tie and shirt and professional wear. And girls had resort wear and things you could have fall off easily beside the bed. And like, is that, what about working women? Where do we find clothes? And the guy looked at me oddly. And then he suddenly looked around and he looked back to me. He's like, you keep shaking up my world and I'm so certain of it. And then I spend time with you and it's broken. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a compliment to me. <laughs> I, I mean, it, was, it was very sweet. But at the same time, it was, it was just reminding that, you know, there's women that don't have access or get, get shunned aside for having a period every month. And, mm -hmm. and I, that's one of the reasons that I really loved your poems when you, when you first reached out to us. I ran right out and read everything that I could find. And I love the way that you drink in words that turn some of the frustration and rage and sadness and joy. And you, and you make them palatable and understandable. And you pack so much into small, perfect poems. And I really loved that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I try to do that, I think, because I don't, well, one, I'll be honest, I have a, a very, um, I'm, I'm not big on complicated words myself. <laughs> and also, I, I try to write poems that, that my friends and family uh, would appreciate, even if they don't. They don't keep up with my career as well as maybe I would like, uh, <laughs> but they they are very supportive. And I think when they do open this book, for example, uh, this chat book will be the first thing uh, of mine that my parents have really read. I think they just know that I'm a writer doing writerly things. But when I think about writing, I think about my intention to communicate something of course, it's it's up to the person if they want to read it, of course. But when they do, I don't want them to be I don't want them to be, I guess, bogged down or burdened by like the stigma of some poetry, for example. I think it can get a, a intimidating rep from from some of the things we were asked to learn in school or asked to read in school. And while I don't. You know, I don't have a problem with that per se, but more so I I don't want that to get in anybody's way when it comes to my work personally, especially as folks who don't read a lot of poetry. And I think that's kind of who I'm writing for. If I were to to think about, you know, an audience, it's definitely not a room full of scholars, I think, but I, I do love when they appreciate it as well. But I want, I like think I like to write things that make my sister smile, for example. Well, that's, a, that's a great goal. I love it that you can write things to make your sister smile. And there is exhausting poetry out there. There are, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, there are, I'm going to, I don't think derivative is the right word, but what do you call Chaz, you can help me with this. When something is so referential that you had to have read these 
five piece you know you had to have read dostoevsky and yeah and yeah i mean you're, you're looking at th- at the extremes you're looking at things like t.s Eliot, whom i personally adore but I, well, me too he was but. yeah but he was kind <laughs> of i mean not exactly deliberately being obscure but so inward that his own breadth of knowledge, understanding, and reading, particularly his own, his, yeah, he was extraordinarily well-read. And he refers to all of that, and he draws it all in, to the point where he actually had to publish The Wasteland with notes, um, <laughs> which are almost as obscure as the poem. Oh, but yeah, it's a game that poets play, to some extent. Yes. Um, to assert the I, I I gave up poetry when I was 25 on the grounds that if I really really worked at it I could possibly be a second-rate poet but I could in, with the same effort I could become a first-rate novelist which is still my goal and I've written very few poems since then. Yeah. but but there is arrogance in classic canonical poetry which just needs stamping on um somebody somebody famous i don't remember who said that uh prose was putting words into the right order uh where poetry was putting the right words into the right order and i just want to punch them why <laughs> um, because it's offensive to those of us who write prose to assume that we don't search equally hard for the right words before we put them into order well, and, and Ashanti, tell me if you agree with this, which is when I write poems, I'm, it's like I'm condensing down and trying to come up with the feeling and the thought, and I'm just condensing it down and making it there. Just there, There's you know, no, no, no frivolous, any side things or anything else, but this is, this is, this is what I want to tell you. I, I agree with that. I think, and that's something that getting the MFA, I was definitely taught to prioritize that brevity of, of expressing that emotion through the image. I do, however, also agree that it is a little strange to, to herald poetry as putting the right words in the right yeah. order, uh, because that's, that's so subjective. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I, I don't know so much about America, but I, I lived 30 years in the literary community in the UK, and there was an inbuilt inherent assumption that poetry was the superior art and all other forms of writing slotted in below that, which is probably, I still have this um, <laughs> resentment. Though it hasn't stopped me writing a few poems recently, which is nice. I actually, I, I, I'm, after 10 years in America, I'm starting to shrug off that, that burden of... Snobbiness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's snobbiness, because it's... I yeah. love that your, your poetry is very accessible. And... Exactly. This is, this is the point I was trying to come back to, yeah. is that, yeah, all those things that the canonical poets have done to, frankly, to exclude readers who were not like themselves. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I was going from the beginning, but I got sidetracked. 
Whereas your poetry, Shanti, seems to lead everybody directly to the core of what you want, what you are, what you're saying. It's the opposite of exclusionary. I love that. Thank you. I, that's, definitely, that's definitely the goal. I think, honestly, a lot of social justice work even is like trying to say, like, give us freedom and justice <laughs> as plainly and as simply as folks can comprehend it. And then folks are overcommitted to not comprehending it. So then we say it another very obvious way, you know, and I feel like this is, that's definitely what's happening. <laughs> even in my, even in my own work, I, I really want, I don't want my intention to be mistaken in, in the sense that these poems are meant to, to really sh- show folks and be a reminder after you know centuries of of black folks being de- frankly dehumanized that oh, yeah. you know we we have an extreme complexity of emotion whether you acknowledge it or whether you witness it or not but here's a book of poems that you know hopefully really articulates that to you and for some folks um particularly a black audience i hope that that's you know affirming because we don't always get the opportunity to articulate that. I was recently, I, I've been recently pondering the concept of emotional awareness and how even that is a, is a thing that requires privilege. For, for example, I, I recently discovered while having a conversation with a, a white a friend of mine that I have never, ever described a feeling, a feeling unsafe as me feeling threatened. And when they used the phrase, I feel threatened, I was actually taken off guard because that's only a word that's been weaponized against black and brown bodies and not something that I had ever acknowledged as feeling for myself, even though I can think of times in my life where you could definitely define that as feeling threatened, but not having that language. Um, and I think that that's something I also got a little sidetracked, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, that we don't always get the opportunity to really express that. And, and I, I think that's a huge disservice to ourselves. I, I agree huh. entirely. I was, I was pondering this in terms of of the, I call it the goldfish memory that uh, constant being flooded with media gives people. I mean, right now we can say, we remember Breonna Taylor, we remember Sandra, we remember all of these names, but if they aren't said and repeated and put in eloquent words, it's very easy to turn on, there's always gonna be another tragedy. There's always gonna be another thing in the news. And I didn't realize until recently and I'm going to say this in the last 10 years, how crappy people's memories actually are if they have nothing to link it to. Yeah. So one of the things that I liked, uh, that I like about poetry, and that I really like about your poetry and some of the other poetry in particular, is that it takes some of these meetings and some of these moments in time and says, this I'm immortalizing. I am putting this on paper. This can't just be crumpled up and thrown aside. So what I liked about the poems in particular is they are, they're shorter in words. You're right. You don't use complicated words that anybody's going to have to go look up, 
but they're hard hitting and they're very visual all the same and easy to access. And they record moments, some that happened, some that didn't happen, some that happened in a thousand ways. And you gave them a body, you gave them a head as it were, and something that somebody can read down and then will remember to saying, yeah, we, we like to forget how many people have been martyred in America, how many people that have been, you know, there's a lot of things that the news glosses over because people have no memory. I think that by writing some really beautiful poetry and that not chronicled necessary, but honored what happened for good or ill, gives it a footnote, gives it a bookmark, says, this will not be forgotten because you've written something about it. In particular, that made me think about the busts of the beheaded because people oh. don't realize we think of, you know, beheadings, we think of, oh yeah, that's a ton of French Revolution in Madame Guillotine, right? How many heads got hatched off in America that were Indian or black or white or the wrong people? And so your busts of the beheaded, I really liked for taking that idea. So tell everybody else about your poem a little bit and would you be willing to read it? Yeah, of course. So Bus of the Beheaded is a a three-part poem based on the premise that the human brain continues to, uh, it remains conscious several seconds uh, after being decapitated from, from the body. And, and I also, I'm going to butcher this fun fact, but apparently the, the human mind or the human speaks, you know, a certain number of words per, per minute. Um, and this is heightened, of course, when it's under, when they're under extreme stress. So when I wrote Bus of the Beheaded, I, I kept those two facts in mind. One that after a person's head was literally chopped off, they remain conscious for some time, but also there would be this heightened, this heightened speed of, of, of speaking, you know, of thinking. So I, I tried to capture what I suppose technically would be these, these fictional person's uh, last thoughts. I will go ahead and read it uh, for you all. Yes, uh, please. Busts of the Beheaded. It is rumored that the human brain remains conscious several seconds after being decapitated from the body. Penny, beheaded after becoming infected with worms from eating soil to supplement her meager rations. They say sickness come from my back tooth holding mud in its trenches. They say me, I got worms, just make me laugh. No, nothing live inside me won't be soon to bury itself, scooping handfuls of hunger over its own head. And even if it grows three seasons till it fall one day out my belly and get snatched by traitors who say me, I don't have time to mother. So I beat the names of my nine gone cheering in the dirt with this here shovel. Then I shovel this here dirt with my mouth, clay in my jaw because the grits wasn't enough. My okra seeds dried up and oysters don't fuck fast as we shook so I don't believe no worms come inside me. They must conceive my waggling finger beds to be envy. Read these dusted lips for want. So if a doctor say me I have worms, I eat more worms. And when they say me going crazy, I open wide and say, ah, look here, this, this bubbled mouth ain't a sick, it's a cure. Leroy, 
beheaded for running away to be with his lover. For you, I run past ivy, iron, hound's maw, and high water. Find another man's field for where we might twine legs like snakes and bad suggestions. Let us sip skin salt till our lips feel like our bronzed heels and our steel toes have feeling in them again. Till my breath stinks of daffodil milk, till you have followed my constellation of limbs to horizon. This spine of mine has never held wicker basket nor whip, so it'd be easy for me to think every groan spiritual, every stroke the strike of pickaxe into good ground. I envy the ugly, how gravity nibbles the corners of your lips, unpaid labor tugging on your shoulders each sunrise. I do my best to imitate, bent and open like the shotgun loading, like the half-bidden moon, like misread scripture, like your arched and aching back, the grooves wide enough for my fingertips to ride your river of flesh. Cain, beheaded yeah. for participating in an uprising. To hold fire in my arms, I would give up the whole length of my neck to only kindle heat with the curl of my finger. You can have my pillowy face, my railroad of spine, just so I'd be able to hail fire on this plantation and even his children. Loose his horses with those tiny, fast-moving bits of light. Aim at the sky and tear holes into their gods. I would tie my own throat in a bow. If only our oppressors would lick these flames, I will let them bring their own fire to my chest. I promise I will not feel a thing. I will already be warmed. The mm. end. <laughs> so tasty. Wow. They all led me to think it's like, well, what would be the last few seconds that I could run through? Because I find in times of stress, everything slows down and my brain thinks faster. And like, how long a final soliloquy could I have? And that's what I thought when I was reading your poems. So I love them. Yeah, I often wonder, I too wonder, especially when I, after I read those poems, like, what would I think about? Because I'm pretty sure, like, we we think we would think about the fact that we just got decapitated, but I'm sure, like, something in us would know that this is the last thing you're ever going to think about. And are you sure that's what you want it to be? <laughs> you know, like, I I would probably try to think of, of, of something I was actually fond of, hopefully. You know, that's the thing that popped in my mind. You'd think about the thing that you were most fond of or most worried about or was closest to your heart. At least I like to think instead of, oh, this is just what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because I feel like, honestly, in my day-to-day -day life, my thinking is literally about the latter, right? Like, oh, this thing just happened. Let me stress about it. But yeah, I think getting your head chopped off really puts things into perspective. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing is the poem would, would hit harder to those of us who are kind of scatterbrained and, you know, have those different worries. Oh my goodness, a lot, like you, my goodness, the last time I did this, such and such happened. I wonder what this person's going to think. I hope I can get this done. But as far as your poem's concerned, there's a sense of clarity. What exactly are my last 160 words going to be? And it's not going to be worried about what other people think. It's going to be worried about what's closest to my heart. And that's what touches me uh, in the power of this message. Thank me you. Too. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> me too. It is gorgeous. And yeah. 
what would you recommend for if somebody said, wow, I have all these words and images in my head. I'm a poet. How can I improve? What would you recommend? Literally just, just write it down. Just write it down, write it all down. It's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And as you work on it, it's going to still be bad and you're going to work on it some more and it's going to still be bad. And, but (laughs) I promise if you keep working at it, it turns into something just absolutely beautiful. And, and that doesn't mean every, you know, I'm, I would never be one to say that someone's like every single poem is going to be published. I can't even say that for myself, but even, even the ones that don't make it are, are beautiful in the way of which I have tended to them. So I guess that's really what I mean when I, (laughs) when I keep saying it's going to be bad because it's, it's not when I say bad, I strictly mean in terms of, of internal satisfaction. Do I feel do I feel proud with this this labor that I've done yet? And and you get a you get to a breakthrough point where you really start to feel proud of it. And even if you end up shelving it or balling up the piece of paper, it's it's more like a farewell than a good riddance. <laughs> and and it is also true of course, and inevitably and always, that everything you write makes you a better writer, even the stuff that doesn't sell, even the stuff you sweat your heart out and still doesn't sell. You're a better writer going forward for having been through that work. I I have a question, Ashanti, which, I don't know, you see, I, I mean, I came into this wanting to talk about how much you thought of your work your poetry as social justice work, as activism. Um, and, and after listening to you um, for half an hour, I, I no longer need to answer that, to ask that question. But I'm wondering, is, I mean, can you imagine, is it even possible to be a young Black writer in America right now and not be an activist? I have to say yes, I have to say it is possible because I refuse to relinquish that agency. <laughs> there has there has to be the possibility for people not to participate right. um, in order to make participation actually mean something uh, for those who consciously do it. The trouble is that, to be honest, Black folks' work is so often politicized regardless of the intention um, and sometimes we just want to be, <laughs> but you know, it often gets it often gets interpreted as some kind of statement um, or what have you. But I think, um, as far as the writer goes, I definitely do think that folks can make that decision. I'm personally reticent to consider myself an activist or to consider my work activism up. Uh, simply because I do feel like that's something that folks are very easily grabbing onto these days. And it's something that I want to earn rather than claim for myself. Uh, So if that's something that other folks would describe me as, I will take it as a compliment, but um, that's, that's definitely not a a adjective I I use going forward uh, for myself without the opinion of the people. Okay, that's 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 really interesting. Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's fair in the same way that I've heard somebody say, "Well, a woman wrote this, so it it 
you know, it's automatically feminist, right? right. <laughs> Which, mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which has millions of women suddenly hurt themselves from how hard their eyes rolled. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I think it's really beautiful. And I wish you the best with this as it gets published. What are you working on now? What do you have going forward? Um, I'm working on my next poetry collection. Fingers crossed it'll be a full length this time. I'm I'm in it for the long haul. Uh, this one is definitely uh, once again me really bringing in those personas of folks who I feel have often been ignored or uh, disregarded or undervalued. Um, and it's kind of in a way me, me rebuilding my own lineage in a way of creatively in the absence of, of course, any documentation that ties me back to anyone beyond my great grandmother, right? To, to try to, these poems in this new collection are definitely a statement of, of, of coming from a, a lineage of people who, who were a bit, um, who were, who were just lively, just fun, just enjoyed life, no matter what life threw at them. And that's really what I'm trying to capture in this next collection. So I hope you all read that one as well, because I'm really excited about it. I'm I'm planning. I'm letting loose on the page. It's it's going to be really mm -hmm. fun. Oh, we're, we're we're getting you back to talk about that when it comes out as well. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm totally down. I've, I'm I'm super excited. I was excited to talk about this, and I'll be excited to talk about that one. Y'all are lovely, lovely people. We look forward to it. And we will put links to Ashanti's books and other things that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we answer email. We love email. Ashanti, if somebody has a question after this episode, can I reach out to you and get that answered for them? You sure can. Yep. Uh, they can also follow me on Twitter uh, and message me there as well at, at Ashanti Creates. We will yeah. absolutely put, I'm going to put all of your social media links. So send them to me in an email and we will put them right on our website. Awesome. Thank you for being with us today too. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro and exit music are both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is The Bean Scene Coffee Shop and Jackal Designs. And hey, thanks so much for listening today. Mm -hmm.